Doesn't it seem weird, though, that the one thing that you're guaranteed to see if you go out in public, the one thing that you're guaranteed to see if you turn on the television for more than half an hour, the one thing that you're guaranteed to hear on the radio if you turn on almost any, or any radio station in the world, sex, we don't really talk about at church. Isn't that weird? The one thing that the Bible talks about a lot in both good ways and bad ways, we don't ever talk about. Well, we're going to change that. We're going to talk about that this morning. We are going to talk about sex. But before we do that, I want to bring one thing up. We are in the middle of our marriage series called A Fairy Tale. And in a couple weeks, we're going to do something pretty cool. We're going to have um, three couples up on the stage. And um, we are not putting them up there as people who have it perfect because we don't believe anybody has it perfect. But these are three couples that are at various stages of their marriage, and they're going to, we're going to talk about in a real relaxed, informal way about what it means to be a, a married couple who's following Christ. And so before we start talking about sex, if you have questions that you want to ask them, because what we're going to do is we're going to do a little panel discussion. If you have questions that you want to bring up that you'd like to hear these couples discuss, you can either write those on the connection card and take them to the info hub after the service, or you can send an email to the church this week. We want to get... Um, equipped with some questions so that we can know what you guys would like to know from couples who seem to be having success in a, in a Christian marriage. Uh, fair enough? Okay. Well, so I've already been asked about five times this morning, so you're the expert on sex, huh? <laughs> and um, the truth is, the way this came about, when uh, we started putting this series together, Jeff Smith, our, our lead pastor, said, okay, we want to do you know, three or four parts, and we want, I want a different person to preach every time. And um, I'll do one, and then you can do one, and then you can do one. And I wasn't actually in the loop originally. I was, I was going to sit this one out. And we had a guest speaker that was lined up to come um, to talk about sex. And uh, he, he has a great presentation about sex, a great um, about uh, uh, how God loves created pleasure and loves pleasure. And so I was real excited about that. And then he said he couldn't make it. And so <clears throat> I went to Jeff, and I said, hey, Jeff, the sex week is open. Do you want to do that one instead? And Jeff's doing conflict resolution next week. And Jeff kind of looked at me and he said, no, I'm pretty good with conflict resolution. I think that'll be, that'll be good. And so the truth is I'm not the expert on sex, and I don't want to paint myself as such. Don't get me wrong. I know a few things, okay? So, but uh, I have to tell you, Mike, Mike Rasmussen did a great job with the welcome this morning. And when he says, uh, he said Steve's going to come up and talk about sex, and he's got some interesting things to say. Um, my wife, who's been more nervous about this week than anybody, kind of poked me in the arm and said, not too interesting, okay? <laughs> so I'm going um, to honor her in that. So. But, um, so because I'm not an expert in sex, I have to go someplace where I might be able to find some wisdom. And so I spent a lot of time over the last couple of weeks um, looking to see what the Bible has to say about sex. And I found there's this guy in the Bible that wrote an awful lot about sex, both good and bad, and his name is Paul. And Paul wrote most of the New Testament, if you don't know that. Paul wrote um, many letters to churches and, and um, letters to friends, and a lot of it became part of the Bible. And so God, Paul and God are like this, right? So they're, like, he really knows and understands the heart of God. And I found it fascinating when I was reading that there's one part in, uh, in the New Testament where Paul's writing this letter to a church, and he says something that really stopped me in my tracks. He said, no other sin so clearly affects the body is this one. And I thought, now wait a minute. And maybe you think, now wait a minute. God, God spends a lot of time telling us all these things that we're not to do. 
God spends a lot of time laying out what is sin and what is not sin. And here's Paul maybe taking a liberty to say that, you know what, there's one sin that is separate from everything else. There's one sin that is greater than anything else. There's one sin that is different from everything else. And then he says, because it so clearly affects the body. And I want to take you there. If you have your Bibles, you open them to 1 Corinthians 6. We're going to start in verse 18. And the verse will be on the side screens here. Paul says, run from sexual sin. No other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does. For sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Your body is the place where the Holy Spirit lives. That's what that means. Who lives in you and was given to you by God. You do not belong to yourself, for God bought you with a high price. So you must honor God with your body. Would you pray with me? Lord God, I thank you that you bought us at a high price. And uh, while I know this topic is uncomfortable and um, may be really hard for some people because they messed up in this area, I just pray that you would put those thoughts aside and let people hear what you have to say. Um, You have a lot of wisdom and a lot of uh, things to say about sex in the Bible, but you also bring a lot of grace. And I just thank you for that. And I thank you for the idea that no matter how bad we've messed up in this area or other areas of our lives, that we can be forgiven through you. And so thank you for that today as we spend just a few minutes talking about something that's really important to you, God. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you've ever been to my house, in my backyard, I have a great big pile of sticks. And uh, I have a few trees at my house. If you've been to my house, you know that. And uh, last fall, we had a really cool bonfire with my kids and my, my wife. We just kind of had a family thing. We had collected some stuff that had fallen in the, <clears throat> in the woods. And we made a little pile about like this. And, and uh, you know, one fall day is one of those perfect fall days. It was crisp. And there was like a little tinge of frost in the air. And we just said, you know what? We need a little fire to keep us warm. And we're going we're gonna to set a bonfire. So we lit these sticks on fire. And the kids went out. And we made hot dogs. And roasted marshmallows, and it was a lot of fun, and I thought, man, I can't wait to do that again. So late fall through winter, um, everything that fell down, everything that I cut up, I just started putting in this pile, and um, it got to be pretty sizable, and then this spring, as as soon as the weather broke, I noticed there were a couple trees that had fallen down, and so I went out and kind of cut the limbs off, and about two weeks ago, I had a friend come over to my house, and he hadn't been over there before, and he uh, was looking around, and he looks out the back window, and he's just kind of staring at this pile. And he goes, dude, when you light that, you have got to call me to come over. And I said, what do you mean? And he goes, well, look at that thing. That thing is really going to go up. Look how tall that is. And I hadn't really thought about it, but as I walked out there, this pile, this bonfire pile now is about up to here on me. And it's probably eight feet wide at the base. And, and because it's been so wet, you know, typically when I light it, I'll pour a lot of gasoline on this thing to make it go up. And I started thinking you know what, I might want to rethink this bonfire thing for right now. If it's really going to go up, maybe I should unstack the pile and have a little more contained environment for this uh, bonfire so that it's good and pleasing and um, fun and not dangerous and deadly. And the truth is that sex is a lot like fire, isn't it? I mean, sex in the right environment, contained in the right way, is great and pleasurable and warm and comforting, but outside that environment where it's not contained, it can be hurtful, scarring, 
and destructive, just like fire, right? I mean, we even use a lot of the same terms for sex and fire, don't we? I mean, she's really hot. I mean, she is smoking hot, right? I mean, I'm on fire for this girl. I'm on fire for this guy, right? I've got a, I've got a burning desire. I'm a hunk of hunk of burning love, you know? Uh, no, not, not, not her. She's an old flame. She's an old flame. There's, there's just no, there was no spark there. We use a lot of the same terms, and so how do we not get the relationship that sex is like fire and that it's when it's contained in the right environment, in a healthy environment, it's good for us and it's warm. But outside of that, it's bad. And so what, what Paul's saying here is he's saying that you should run away from sexual sin. You should run away from the uncontrolled fire. If the building's burning down, you should run away, right? You should flee from sexual sin. Some verses say flee from sexual sin. See, we should, we should change the channel away from sexual sin. We should turn the computer off away from sexual sin. We should leave that restaurant. We should get out of that workplace. We should get out of that relationship. Wherever we're drawn into sexual sin, we should turn around and run. The problem we have so many times is that we look at sin like a line right along here. And we say, you know what? Whatever's on that side of the line is bad. As long as I stay on this side of the line, I'm okay, right? So I can, guys, I can watch that movie. I can go to that website. I can flirt with that girl that cuts my hair. As long as I don't cross over the line, I'm safe. Ladies, I can read that book that presents romance in a way that I just don't get from my husband. I can go out to lunch with the girls at work and talk about all the different guys in the office. As long as I don't cross that line, I'm okay. But Paul says, flee from sexual sin. Run that way, away from the line. Don't try to get too close to the line. Don't try to get, when your house is on fire, you don't sneak up and try to warm your hands on it, right? You run away. You go get help. You go find an expert, a fireman in that case, who can help you get rid of the fire. And see, the problem we have in America today is that we blame all this other stuff on our culture, don't we? I mean, we say, you can't really avoid that stuff. It's everywhere. I mean, you turn on the TV, you see it. You turn on the radio and you hear it. And we can't really avoid it. And so we, we look for rules as to, well, this is okay and that's not. And that's how, you know, oral sex becomes not sex because we're looking for a rule to say, you know, that's okay and this is not okay. And we think, well, that's all because of the culture. And if you ask parents today, you know, why do you let your daughter dress like that? Why do you let your son say those things? And they say, well, you know what? It's just, it's part of the culture. It's just the way they grew up. And so we look for these rules, but the truth is, it's not our culture. It's the world we live in. And not the world we live in today, but the world as it's created and fallen. And I just want to take you back. If you don't believe me, I want to show you. In Leviticus chapter 18, this isn't going to be on the screen, but I just want to tell you that over 3,000 years ago, people struggled with this. So much so that they asked God to set down rules about what you could do and what you couldn't do as it related to sex. So I'm just going to take you back to Leviticus 18. And this is a little creepy, but... It's in the Bible, so I figure I can say it in church, right? Um, start with Leviticus 18.6. It says, don't have sex with a close relative. I am God. Don't violate your father by having sex with your mother. She is your mother. Don't have sex with her. Dude, it's your mom. <laughs> don't have sex with your father's wife. 
That violates your father. Don't have sex with your sister, whether she's your father's daughter or your mother's, whether she was born in the same house or elsewhere. Don't have sex with your son's daughter or your daughter's daughter. That would violate your own body. Don't have sex with the daughter of your father's wife, born to your father. She's your sister. I already said that, but apparently these things were happening. And so God said, okay, yeah, I know she's not really your sister. She's just your father's daughter, but don't have sex with her either. Don't have sex with your mother's sister. She's your aunt. Don't violate your father's brother or your uncle by having sex with his wife. Don't have sex with your daughter-in-law. Don't have sex with your brother's wife. Don't have sex with a woman and her daughter. Don't marry your wife's sister as a rival wife and have sex with her. Don't have sex with a woman during the time of her period. Don't have sex with a neighbor's wife and violate yourself by her. Don't give any of your children to be burned and sacrificed by the god Molech. Okay, now I don't know how that really fits in there. I'm sure it does, but it's in there. Don't have sex with a man as one does with a woman. This is abhorrent. Don't have sex with an animal and violate yourself by it. And so people at this time, over 3,000 years ago, 3,500 years ago, are walking closer and closer to the line, and they're looking for God and just saying, okay, God, tell me where the line is because I'm going to go this way, and I need you to help me. But Paul says, no, flee from the line. In fact, if we go back a little further in 1 Corinthians 6, 15 to 17, there's this idea of how sex affects our body. It says, don't you realize that your bodies are actually parts of Christ? Should a man take his body, which is part of Christ, and join it to a prostitute? Never. And don't you realize that if a man joins himself to a prostitute, he becomes one body with her. Some versions say one flesh with her. For the scriptures say, the two are united into one. But the person who is joined to the Lord is in one spirit with him. And so there's this idea, and we've all heard it before, that that when you have sex with somebody, and Paul says sexual sin affects your body in a way that no other sin does. And what he's talking about is this idea that was first presented to us in Genesis, that when a man and a woman are married, they become one flesh, right? And, And you might say, well, wait a minute. Paul really took some liberties here because he's saying if you have sex with somebody, you become one flesh. And what Genesis says is that when you marry somebody, you become one flesh, right? So where's the deal? I want to take you one other place in the Old Testament. There's this idea that would have been around certainly in Paul's time and even before in biblical times that sex equals marriage. Let me show you in Exodus 22.16. It says if a man seduces a virgin who's not engaged to anyone and has sex with her, he must pay the customary bride price and marry her. So, what do we see here? There's this idea that if you have had sex with somebody, you are, in God's eyes, you are married. You have to pay the bride price and you have to marry this girl. And then there's, it says, unless the father doesn't want you to. But in God's eyes, when you have sex with somebody, you are married. You've become one flesh. You guys probably wonder why I had Plato up here, don't I? You know what one flesh looks like? You guys are, were all one flesh when you were created. You were a ball of clay that was created by God, and you were, being, you were going through your life being molded and shaped into what God wanted you to be. And then at some point, many of us met another ball of clay that was created by God. And we um, found something particularly attractive about that other ball of clay, whether it was the color or the shape or the feel, the mushiness, I'm not sure what it was. But there was something particularly attractive. It's kind of weird. About this ball of clay. And so we, we started to get closer to this ball of clay, and we'd call each other on the phone at night, and we'd talk for hours and hours and hours and hours. And we'd say, no, you hang up. No, you hang up. 
I'm not going to hang up. You hang up. And then we'd go to the dances and we'd stand on opposite sides of the, of the gymnasium and eventually the one ball of clay would get up enough courage to walk over to the other side and go to the other ball of clay and ask, ask him or her to dance, usually her. And then eventually something would happen and we'd kiss and then we, it just got deeper and deeper and to the point where there was nothing else, there was no place else to go because we had our animal instincts that we had to answer to and we become one flesh, right? And so we're all mashed up and we're in this really kind of pretty, kind of nice ball of clay but then before long, he stopped returning phone calls or um, she started becoming attracted to somebody else and our parents were going to find out and something else was going to happen and so we just, you know, it just didn't work out and so we split up, we broke up. Do you ever notice that when you when you um, end a relationship, it's always some violent, like this tearing, like a breakup or a split up. or a, And then all of a sudden, it doesn't really come clean, does it? You've still got part of somebody else's one flesh with you, but they go away. And now that you've kind of violated yourself, it's not really a big deal to do it again, is it? So you go off to college and you uh, meet somebody there at a party and you just think, you know what, I, I just, it's been a long time since I was one flesh with somebody, and so I'm just going to get together with somebody else just for a night or maybe for a week or just for a weekend, and I become one flesh with them, and then that's not going to work out, and so I'm going to pull that away. And then before we know it, we're this giant ball, this mess that looks nothing like God created us to look, does it? It's so different. It's so, so messy, It's so unlike anything that God would create. And this is what a lot of us, this is what we take into marriage. This is what we take into relationships. And so we view ourselves as that perfect ball of clay that God created. But then when we look, when people look at us from the outside, they see all this mess from all the other people that we've been one flesh with. And that's why in the book that talks most about sex, Song of Songs, there's this recurrent refrain from the woman And she says, ladies, put it up on the screen. She says, ladies, no matter what you do, promise me, O women of Jerusalem, by the gazelles and the wild deer, not to awaken love until the time is right. Mm. Don't awaken love before it's time. And so there's this idea that, that love is great, love is perfect, sex is awesome, but we're not to awaken it before it's the right time because we're in danger if we don't have the right person, if we're not in the right relationship, if we're not in a relationship that honors God, we have this danger of polluting ourselves, right? Of looking, of, of affecting our own bodies with sexual sin, of looking like nothing that we were created to look like. And so, <clears throat> what that means for people in this room that aren't married is this. Ladies, if a man comes up to you, a boy comes up to you and you guys are dating and he says, you know what, I really want to have sex with you. The correct answer is this. That's awesome. I want to have sex with you too. So here's what we should do. Let's call all our friends and tell them. Let's call my parents and tell them. And we'll call your parents and tell them. And then we'll call our pastor and we'll tell him. And then we'll have this big ceremony. And then we can have sex all we want. All the time. <laughs> right? We want to become one flesh, but we want to do it in the right circumstances, in the right environment. We want to do it in a contained setting so that we don't get burned and we don't get scarred and we don't get destroyed. Now, a very common 
uh, question that you get when you talk about that is, what about for married people or divorced people? What about people who have been married again? I mean, this, this one flesh stuff, yeah, that's fine. But you know what? I'm already one flesh with other people. I was married before. So really, if I'm divorced now, is it okay for me to go out and have sex with whoever I want? Just let me ask you a question with that. Married people, divorced people, has sex outside of marriage made your life better or more complicated? See, God doesn't lay down rules because he likes to exert his authority. He doesn't, he doesn't make these rules, things into sin to, to, to be a buzzkill. I mean, God created these rules because he's our father and he's crazy about us. And he knows the way that we're supposed to live that will be a, a, a happy life and a good life and pleasing to him. And he knows the way that, we're, that we can live that is not at all ideal. And so God created these rules not to to divert us from doing something that would be fun, but to make us into people like he created us to be. Now, when we talk about sex, a lot of churches would stop right there, and they'd say, you know what? Don't do it. Just say no. Um, you know, we're going to play just as I am until somebody comes down up front, and then we can go, okay? But we're not going to stop there because the other part of sex, the part of sex that's on this side of the line is that God created sex. He invented sex. He, he loves sex. He talks so much in the Bible about sex that there's this idea that we have that sex is this, and, and not just our idea, it's God's idea, that sex is an important, integral, fun part of a married relationship. That since Steve Davis started a couple weeks ago on love poetry, sex is natural, sex is fun. Sex is best when it's one-on-one, Right? So the Bible says, yeah, I know, maybe not love poetry. So the Bible says, flee from sexual sin. But it doesn't say flee from sex. In fact, there's a whole book in the Bible that is dedicated to sex. And it's, um, it's called Song of Songs, and it may be Song of Solomon in your Bible. And Steve talked a little bit about this last week, but um, I've, I've been reading this year. We're, we're doing the Bible in a year, and I'm reading from the message. And you guys, if you've heard me speak before, you know this is, I'm a big fan of the message. This is a version of the Bible that was um, uh, put together by Eugene Peterson. And one of the things I love about it is the, just the today's language. It's real easy to read. The other thing I love about it is that every chapter has an introduction that Peterson wrote that is kind of a one-page summary of here's what this chapter is about. And so I just want to read from you, read to you from Song of Songs, the introduction. He says, uh, Eugene Peterson says, We don't read very far in Song of Songs before you realize two things. One, it contains exquisite love lyrics. And two, it's very explicit sexually. The song, in other words, makes a connection between conjugal love and sex, a very important and very biblical connection to make. There are some who would eliminate sex when they speak of love, supposing that they are making it more holy. Others, when they think of sex, never think of love. The song proclaims an integrated wholeness that's at the center of Christian teaching on committed, wedded love for a world that seems to specialize in loveless sex. Now, notice that when Peterson says a world that specializes in loveless sex, he's not talking about the United States in the 21st century. He's talking about the world when Song of Songs was written. So this is not something that's changed by our culture. He says, we read the song and we see the goal and ideal toward which we all press for fulfillment. Despite our sordid failures in love, we see here what we are created for, what God intends for us in ecstasy and fulfillment that is celebrated in the lyricism of the song. And it is, it's a, it's a very lyrical 
um, poetic book, uh, and I'm sure if we could read it in the original Hebrew, it would probably have meter and rhyme and all the things you look for in poetry. But because we don't, it's, um, it's still beautiful. It's got beautiful words. And I just want to read <clears throat> from Song of Songs, which probably doesn't happen in church very often. But I want to read from Song of Songs uh, an exchange. And if you read the book, what it is, is is there's a man and a woman. And at the beginning of Song, and so- a Song of Songs, they're pursuing each other. And so what you read at the beginning is you read kind of this anticipation for what's to come. And then in the middle of the book, where I'm going to read from, they are married. And um, there's this very heightened awareness of, of their sexuality. And, and I'm going to start with, with the man. He says, Dear lover and friend, you're a secret garden, a private and pure fountain. Body and soul, you are paradise, a whole orchard of succulent fruits, ripe apricots and peaches, oranges and pears, nut trees and cinnamon and all scented woods, mint and lavender and all herbs aromatic, a garden fountain sparkling and splashing, fed by waters from the Lebanon mountains. Oh. And the woman says, Wake up, north wind. Get moving, south wind. Breathe on my garden. Fill the air with spice fragrance. In other words, I'm trying to attract this man, right? Oh, let my lover enter his garden. Yes, let him eat the fine, ripe fruits. Ooh. A man says, I went to my garden, dear friend, best lover. I breathed the sweet fragrance. I ate the fruit and honey. I drank the nectar and wine. Celebrate with me, friends. Raise your glasses to life, to love. And you think about the idea of telling your friends to celebrate because you had sex, and that's kind of 21st century too, right? I mean, a lot of guys, you talk about that. One of the things that's really cool about Song of Songs is this whole book is about sex, and not one place does it say, I want to have a kid. I want to procreate. I want to multiply. I want to have children. That the reason for sex is to have kids. This is about an enjoyment of sex for sex's sake. And the great thing about this book is it puts it out, is there's there's um, a couple chapters where they're not married and they're, they're longing for it and they're anticipating it and they're thinking about it and they're dreaming about it, but they don't do it. And then they get married and they do it and it's wonderful and it's pleasing to God and it's pleasing to the people. And what you need to understand is that the people who would have been reading Song of Songs at the time it was written, the, the ancient world, the people in the Bible would have clearly understood this idea that sex is an important part of marriage. That, just like we said earlier, that there's this idea that, that if you have sex with somebody, you're automatically married. There's another idea that if you're married to somebody, you're going to have sex with them, okay? In fact, um, in the ancient world, they would have had what they called a hupa, C-H-U-P-P-A-H. And this is still, you might, might know what a hupa is. It's still used, I'm going to put a picture up here on the screen. It's still used today uh, during Jewish wedding ceremonies. And the hupa is the, the cloth spread across the top. And I just, um, Dan, if you leave that up there for a minute, I just want to point out a couple things. That the cloth um, is across the top of the, uh, of, uh, this, under here the rabbi and the bride and the groom would stand. And first of all, you might notice if you look up at the top of it, it's open kind of at the top. It's hard to see, but there's light protruding down. And that's to represent the, the promise that God made to Abraham that they would have as many descendants as the stars. And so it's open so that you could see the stars under the hoopah. The second thing that would happen is that um, after the wedding ceremony, the wedding party would immediately take down the hoopah and they would move it in to the groom's bed and put it over the bed. And the bride and groom would be whisked away to consummate the marriage, while the wedding party waited outside. You thought your reception was bad. (laughs) 
And so, <laughs> when, when uh, uh, the man in Song of Songs says, celebrate with me, friends, raise your glasses to life, to love, it's kind of like the, the toast at a wedding reception, right? So he's, he's consummated this marriage, and there's this idea that it's an integrated part. Sex and marriage go together like a horse and carriage, right? Love and marriage, love and marriage. Um, that sex is an important part of the marriage, and it's so important that that we, as your family, as your friends, as your rabbi, as whoever is together at the marriage, at the wedding, it's so important that we want to make sure you understand. And you're going to do it right there while we're waiting. We'll wait outside. You know, take your time. I went to a wedding once where they took all the pictures between the marriage, uh, the wedding and the reception, and we had to wait like two and a half hours for the reception, and this clearly would have been much faster if we'd have done this. So... Sexual intimacy in a marriage, the thing to remember about this, and Steve Davis touched on the importance of this last uh, couple weeks ago, sexual intimacy in a marriage stems from mutual submission. If you remember when he taught from Ephesians 5, there was this idea that we are to submit to one another, right? We're to submit to one another. It's, it's, a lot of times we take that verse out of context, especially guys. We love to say that the, the wife should submit to the husband because he's the head, of the head of the wife. But the truth is, right before that, it says, submit yourselves to one another. And for guys... Um, this probably means we have to do a lot of things that we don't want to do. That if we, out of our own volition, of our own choosing, we wouldn't do. It might mean we have to go places we don't want to go. It might mean we have to, to do things we don't want to do around the house. I have a friend um, that's in this room right now, actually. I won't, so I won't look at him. I won't say his name. But he told me one time, he said, when I want to have sex, it starts in the morning. And I said, what do you mean by that? And he said, well, I get up, I'll make breakfast, I'll do the dishes, get the kids ready to school, for school, um, come home early, I'll vacuum the carpet. I'll, you know, do all these things. I'll make a nice dinner. So I said, well, how's that work? <laughs> you know, the Bible tells us that we don't always get what we want because we don't have the right, mo- right motives, right? So, but um, the truth is that for guys, that's, that's a tough act of submission, right? To do things that don't seem at all sexual to us, but that the wife sees as a sign of intimacy, as a sign of service. For ladies, I hate to tell you this, but submission in marriage probably means you're going to have sex more than you want. It's really, really easy to say, um, I've got a headache, or I don't feel right, or you know, I'm going to go read a book, or whatever. But um, I, I know I'm making generalizations here, but in general, the guy is going to want to have sex more than the woman. And so that's uh, an important part of the sexual relationship. And I just wanted to take a minute and look at what happens when we don't submit, because there's biblical... Um, precedent for that too. And so I'll go back to Song of Songs. Right after this celebration, the next, the next chapter, <clears throat> the woman says, I was sound asleep, but in my dreams I was wide awake. Oh, listen, it's the sound of my lover knocking, calling. The man says, let me in, dear companion, dearest friend, my dove, consummate lover. I'm soaked with the dampness of the night, drenched with dew, shivering cold. The woman, but I'm in my nightgown. Do you expect me to get dressed? I'm bathed and in bed. Do you want me to get dirty? Interestingly enough, the Hebrew, that translates as, I have a headache. So, (laughs) I'm bathed in bed. Do you want me to get dirty? But my lover wouldn't take no for an answer. And the longer he knocked, the more excited I became. I got to open the door to my lover, sweetly ready to receive him, desiring and expectant. I turned the door handle, but when I opened the door, he was gone. My loved one had tired of waiting and left. And I died inside. Oh, I felt so bad. 
See, when we don't submit, it automatically plants the seed for dissatisfaction in a relationship. And that's true with sex, and it's true with other parts of our marriage too. But when we don't submit, that's what plants the seed. And that may, and, and I know people who go outside of marriage for sex will say, well, you know, that, that thing, that is what planted the seed. It was his fault. It was her fault that I did that because he planted that seed. And it was, or it was, it was uh, his fault or her fault because they didn't submit to me because I didn't get what I needed in that marriage. And the truth is that even though one person may plant the seed, we nurture it, we water it, we fertilize it, we take care of it by what we watch, what we talk about, what we listen to, and what we do. And so when we forget this idea that the healthy sexual relationship is an important part of our marriage, it's real easy to make excuses for why we do the things we do. See, sex is not in itself, doesn't make a good marriage, but it sure is a symptom of a good marriage, isn't it? If, If a couple, a married couple has a good, healthy sex life, it shows that they have a good, healthy, intimate marriage. And because that's true, and in the right context, I just want to say, I would love nothing more than for Genesis Church to be the most sexed-up church in Hamilton County. And not because... You can clap for that, that's all right. And not because sex in itself is such a great thing, but because sex is an indicator that we have healthy marriages. And there, I mean... Marriage is something that over the last couple of years, God's really laid on my heart to, to really improve the marriages. My marriage, my, our marriage personally, we've taken the last couple of years, we've done a lot of soul searching. I got to tell you that um, uh, submission has become a big thing in my life, and I'm not perfect at it. My wife will tell you that if you see her after service, that I'm not perfect at it. But it's become a big calling on my life because I see the difference now. My wife and I have been married for 16 years this, this fall, late summer, and um, We've, we went through 12, 13, 14 years of a great marriage, a good, healthy, loving marriage. And then a couple years ago, something happened in our life, and we just we turned around and looked at each other and said, hey, you know, we, we, really need to, we really need to look at this. We need to examine this. We need to be accountable to one another. We need to submit to one another. We need to, and, and it was kind of an unspoken thing, but we kind of said, we need to look deep down in our marriage and see the places where, not where it's broken, but where it could be better. And over the last couple of years, i got to say, that my marriage has taken off and flourished, and it's just been a, a really great thing for us. And um, so I just invite you to do that too. One of the things that um, we think about when we think about sexual sin is it's very hard to talk to people about, isn't it? It's, a, it's an area that, unlike any other, like Paul says, no other sin, unlike any other, it's uncomfortable to talk about with somebody. And so if you're caught in a pattern of sexual dysfunction, um, if you've had, uh, if there's something that you can't stop, I invite you just to get an accountability partner, to, to get somebody that you trust, somebody that you know that you trust, that's spiritually grounded, and sit across the table from him, them and say, man, I, I just need your secrecy. I need, this can't go outside of you and me. But here's the thing. I've got this going on in my life. Or, or uh, you know, here's the thing. This, this has been an attractive to me, attraction to me, and I need you to ask, I want to get together with you once a week or every two weeks, and I, I just want to, I want you to ask me questions about that. Ask me anything. Ask me where I've been on the computer. Ask me what movies I've rented and watched that day. Ask me, you know, what, what uh, women I've been seeing outside of my life. Ask me what men I've been dreaming about or thinking about. Or, or you know, ask me uh, if I've been, you know, looking out the window at the neighbor boy mowing his grass, mowing the grass in the, without a shirt on, you know, or whatever. Whatever the thing is that's your thing, get somebody to be accountable for that. And 
um, in, in, uh, in James, it says, confess your sins to one another. And one of the things that um, I always found it a lot easier just to confess my sins to God. And when I, I realized a couple years ago that when I do that and think it's easier to confess my sins to God than to one another, it means that I don't really believe that he's listening. Because if I believed that God was listening, I would be scared to death to confess what's in my mind to God. Wouldn't you? I realize that we are not all there. We're not all in happy marriages. I know there are single people in this room, and I hope this hasn't been a waste for you. I know that there are people in marriages where you can't stand to look at your spouse, where it, it, it just hurts you um, to think about even having sex with them. I realize that there are people in this room right now that are involved in another relationship outside of your marriage. I realize that there are people in this room right now that have a very strong addiction to pornography. Uh, I realize that there are people in this room right now that are involved in premarital sex or sexual behavior, any other sexual behavior that's so far outside God's plan for your marriage. See, because even now, when you're not married, God has a plan for your marriage. The great thing is that if you look like this, this piece of Play-Doh, this piece of clay that has been one flesh with a lot of different people, the great thing about this is this isn't how God wants you to stay. The cool thing is that Christ came down so that we could be made new. And see, when Jesus does this, it says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, it says, this means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. So, see, what Jesus does is he doesn't, like, try to come and pick out all the pieces of this. He doesn't try to make you new by saying, eh, that looks pretty good. You know, I've got most of it out of there. And he doesn't do it as a slow process, Christ says, hey, anyone can be made new. Any husband, any wife, any man, any woman, any boyfriend, any girlfriend, any boy, any girl, anyone who is in Christ has been made new. So if you're married in this room, we want your marriage to be all it can be. And I'm telling you, if you are not in a relationship with Jesus Christ, your marriage is not all it can be. And we just want to invite you to that this morning. I'll close with one other thought here, too. Not close. Don't get too excited. If you're single in this room right now, there's going to come a day where you're going to walk down the aisle and you're going to marry that, that man or that woman of your dreams. And you have three choices to give them. You, you have three choices of what you can tell them on your wedding night. You can say, you know what? I've been in a lot of relationships with a lot of other people, and um, this is kind of what I am. Take it or leave it. I, you were not important enough for me to wait for, is what you're saying. Or you can say, you know what? I, I didn't know who you were. I didn't know where you were, but I knew you were coming. And so I waited my entire life, and this night is going to be so special and so awesome because I did that. The third option you have is this. You can say, I didn't wait. I wish I would have, but I didn't. But you know what? At some point in my life, I made the decision that who you are my future bride, my future groom. And what I want to tell you on my wedding night is that <laughs> at some point I made a decision to turn around and say, I want to be made new. I want all that other stuff to go away. And on my wedding night, I want to say, I waited for you. Those are the three choices you have. There aren't really any others. So um, I just invite you to think about that decision. You know, one of the, the cool things about uh, marriages in the ancient world is that uh, Obviously, a lot of couples wouldn't have had a hoopah just lying around waiting for them, their marriage. 
Um, and so what happened in most cases, in fact, almost uh, a lot of the cases where there weren't wealthy couples involved, is the rabbi would wear a prayer shawl, something like this. And uh, when the rabbi went to marry them, they would tie the prayer shawl up on four posts and put it over the couple and then move that into the bedroom. And um, the great thing about that is there's another element of symbolism that there's a prayer over their marriage that just says, you know, God bless this marriage. And I just want to point your, um, that, that Jesus likely, as he was a rabbi, would have had one of these prayer shawls. And um, in fact, we see a little picture of it, I think, in Matthew 9, 20 through 22. Just then a woman who had suffered for 12 years with constant bleeding came up behind him, Jesus. She touched the fringe of his robe, for she thought, if I could just touch his robe, I will be healed. Jesus turned around, and when he saw her, he said, daughter, be encouraged. Your faith has made you well. And the woman was healed at that moment. Christ has uh, tried to put his prayer shawl over all of our marriages over all of our relationships. He wants himself to be at the base of every relationship we have, whether it's with our parents, with our kids, with our husband or wife, with our friends, no matter who it is. And so I just want to do something this morning. Um, Ben's going to come up here in a minute, and I want to invite you up this morning. There are a lot of you that are in bad places in your marriage. I understand that. And um, if you just would have the courage to come up here and uh, just kneel down, over this prayer shawl. Touch the fringe of it. Touch any part you want and and pray. We can have people up here to pray with you. We can do whatever you want, but we're going to have a time of response. And it doesn't have to be your marriage. Maybe you're in a relationship maybe uh, that you want to pray about. Maybe you have screwed up so bad in this area or some other area of your life, and you just don't think you can be healed. There's this woman that was bleeding for 12 years, and she came to Christ, and she touched the fringe of his robe, and she was healed. And so I just want to invite you this morning, as we go through this song, this time of response, to um, feel free to come up here, kneel down at the shawl, and touch the fringe of it, and uh, take that as a symbolic healing in your life. Um, we're going to pray, and we're going to go through this song, and I would love for you to do that. Lord God, um, this is a difficult subject, and it's an area where a lot of us struggle. But we also know that <laughs> you want to make us all new, and... Uh, it doesn't matter where we are in our life. It doesn't matter if we're married or single. It doesn't matter what relationship we're talking about now with God, that you can heal it. You say in your word, when somebody challenged you on forgiving sins, is it easier to say, to forgive, I forgive her sins, or to say, get up and walk? And the idea there is that it's as easy to, it's much easier to forgive sins than it is to heal people physically. And, and uh, I know that everybody in this room has fallen short of your glory. And so, I just pray over the next couple minutes as we sing this song about your grace, which is so amazing and so incredible that people would have the courage to come forward and pray over the things in their lives and their relationships that they need, to, they need you to fix, that only you can fix, God. We love you, and we just thank you for this next few minutes we've got to meditate and pray and respond to what you've told us today. In Jesus' name, amen.